Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Continuing our summer series on the cross of Jesus, most of the summer we explored how the cross of Jesus saves us, but the last few weeks we've been exploring how the cross of Jesus shapes us. We have learned that those who are saved by the cross are also shaped by the cross, and not just shaped by the cross, but shaped like the cross. Our decisions, our desires... They become more and more, the word we've been using, they become more and more cruciform. Cruciform, cross-shaped, cross-informed, cross-like. The Bible tells us that people who are rescued by the cross of Jesus are actually freed from the terrible bondage of selfishness. We don't grasp anymore for power. We don't grasp anymore for privilege. We don't grasp anymore for position. Why? Because we don't need it. We don't need it. We have everything we need in Jesus. And so we freely give our lives away in God's rescue mission, blessing others as we have been blessed. That is the cruciform life. Two weeks ago, we heard Jesus say to his disciples and to us that if we follow him, we must pick up our cross. Well, this morning we're going to encounter a man who does just that. It's one little verse, but it's pregnant with all kinds of rich meaning and even implications for our lives. It's Luke 23, verse 26. One verse. I'll read and you can follow along. This is God's word. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock, our redeemer. And Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that the word that you breathed, the word that you superintended, the word that you inspired would indeed point us to Jesus so that our hearts would see him for who he is and that we would actually delight in him more after this time than we do at this time. That's our prayer. We ask for that miracle in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So when I was a kid, I was fascinated by the Bible, but I had no idea what it really was. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and so every Sunday I heard very long readings from the big book in front, the Bible, I was even gifted a Bible with my name etched on the front in gold in cursive. And so obviously I knew it was an important book, a sacred book, but that's 
really about it. An important book and a sacred book. Well, if that was true about a kid who went to church every single Sunday, I'm guessing it's true for most folks these days. We are just confused about the Bible. What is it anyway? Well, scholars Paul Zalanka and Michael Gorman describe the Bible as four things, and I like this a lot. A library, a book, a story, and an invitation. So it's a library because just like the public library, it contains a lot of different books written by different authors at different points in history with different genres like poetry, history, letters. There are legal documents in there, even architectural plans in there. And this is a good thing. The Bible is gloriously diverse. As God inspired his word, he would have it so. But the Bible is also not just a library. It is a single book with a front cover and a back cover. Uh, Even with all of its diversity, it is unified. All the lowercase b books of the Bible contain one, sort of contain into one capital B book or Bible. It's a library, yes, but it's one book. It's also a story, and this is something we're going to be getting into quite a bit in our fall launch into the next year. The Bible tells an overarching story. When you helicopter up and you look at all the books of the Bible, with all of their diversity, we can see a single coherent story. A story that begins with God's good creation and concludes with God's renewed creation. And we see that Jesus is the hero of this story. Beginning, end, and everything in between. It is a story. As Pastor Tim Keller puts it, the Bible is not a religious book with rules that has stories sprinkled into it in order to illustrate the rules. It's the reverse. The Bible is the true story of the world. And when we encounter rules and ways of life, it is in context of the giant rescue story that Jesus is doing. He's restoring us to our created purpose. Which means, finally, the Bible is not just a story, but it's an invitation. Readers of the Bible are invited to see themselves in this story. I like to say that the Bible is a window into God's character, but it is a mirror into our character. And so when we encounter the human characters in our, in our Bible, which are always very flawed, we see the Bible as an invitation to see ourselves. To encounter who God really is, but also to encounter who we really are. It's an invitation. Well, I want you to hang on to that image this morning. That image of the Bible as an invitation, because this morning's passage, I believe, is just that. It's an invitation. New Testament expert Daryl Bach, he asks a very good question about this little verse that we just read this morning. He says, quote, it is hard to be sure why Simon is mentioned. Of course, he goes on, this part of the story Where Jesus is being led to his crucifixion on Holy Week. This part of the story functions as a historical note. But this scholar goes on. But is there more? Is there more? I think there is more. 
I think there's way more. I think this verse is a rich invitation to follow Jesus. Matthew and Mark include Simon of Cyrene in their gospel accounts, but Luke adds a unique detail. He writes, to carry the cross behind Jesus. And the commentators I studied all suggested that this was a purposeful statement by Luke because he was indeed saying to his readership, hey, this is a picture of what it looks like to walk behind Jesus, to follow him, to follow him. Now, I'm not alone in this. Over the centuries, the global church has meditated on this small verse and the witness of Simon of Cyrene. It's inspired movements like the Cyrenians, the Order of Simon. He's inspired art. I encourage you to Google Simon of Cyrene and look at the art. He has inspired poetry. Simon is one of the stations of the cross that countless Christians across the globe participate in every Holy Week. All from one little verse. And so in keeping with this, we will sit, as it were, and learn from Simon, Simon our teacher. We will learn what we can about what it looks like to carry a cross, what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I think this verse, as we unpack it a little bit, suggests five things. Now, I'm using that word, I'm actually borrowing that word, suggests, from another Bible teacher, who explored the role of this little verse themselves but said that this is really a suggestive verse. Because why? Because Luke does not tell, he shows. It's all we can do with this verse, and that's all we can do with Simon. And so I'll do my best to anchor what follows in more Bible than this single verse. But let's allow Simon to suggest to us what it looks like to follow Jesus. I think the witness of Simon shows us five things. The first is this. Following Jesus turns everything upside down. We used this language last week, upside down. But we see it again, starting in verse 26. Begins with the phrase, as they led Jesus away. Verse 26 begins with a, a throwaway phrase. We might be tempted to look at it as. As they led Jesus away. So this alone, I think, is pregnant with profound meaning. Jesus, the pre-existent, uncreated, eternal, sovereign Lord of all, was led. You would expect Jesus to do the leading. Right? But no, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, not to lead in military domination, but to lead by being led. And where was King Jesus led? Not to a throne, but to a cross to die for us. Where was King Jesus led? He was not led to the center of the city, but actually to the outskirts of the city, exiled to bring us near. Where was the king of all led? Not towards adoring crowds but towards the cursed tree, absorbing the curse that our sin, our sin deserves. Where was King Jesus led? Not towards victory as the world defines victory, but actually towards losing as the world defines losing, so that we would gain everything who he came to serve. That is absolutely upside down, and it turns our expectations about the way the world works and the way that God is upside down. It turns everything upside down. John Grondelsky at Seton Hall University, 
He puts everything in perspective when he writes, quote, after a night of physical and judicial abuse, a morning trial, a flogging that left many men dead and brutal mockery of the king game. Jesus just might expire on the way. What is he saying? He's saying that the reason that Simon is asked to carry the cross is most likely because the Roman soldiers were afraid that Jesus was going to die walking to the cross. This is Jesus' upside-down coronation. After his upside-down visitation through his incarnation, where he comes to us, he comes to us to serve, even to serve us like that, which results in an upside-down salvation. We don't contribute to our salvation. We simply receive it. One writer calls this upside-down character of Jesus and his mission, and I like this a lot, paradoxy. It rhymes with orthodoxy. Paradoxy. They observe that the way that we reign in the kingdom, according to King Jesus, is through costly service. The way that we reign, according to King Jesus, in his kingdom, is by dying in service of others. So first, I think we see from Simon that following Jesus is upside down. Number two, though, I think following Jesus also involves what we could call uninvited suffering. This verse says that Simon was seized. The Roman soldiers didn't look across the crowd and ask for willing volunteers. Can we get a volunteer to help Jesus? No, the Roman soldiers commanded that Simon of Cyrene carry that cross and help Jesus out. You don't say no thanks to a Roman soldier. Simon didn't wake up that morning imagining he would be carrying a bloody Roman crucifixion device that afternoon. But there he was. So I agree with the one who says that Simon might illustrate an important element in discipleship that following Jesus sometimes involves uninvited suffering. And we have a hint from Simon of Cyrene of that. But John, in 1 John, says it plain. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Peter says it plain. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, Peter says, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. So that you will have wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests on you, Peter says. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, prying into people's affairs. Now Peter's making a point. If you suffer, it better not be because you're a jerk. <laughs> In Jesus' name. But it's no shame to suffer for being a Christian, Peter says. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name, he says. 1 Peter 4, 12-16. And Jesus himself says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you will have hard times. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
And so following Jesus, Jesus assured us, he promised us, he said, if you follow me, you will take up a cross. And so with Simon, we get a hint of what that cross looks like sometimes. We didn't ask for it. More than a decade ago, my wife and I were surprised with suffering. And I know you all have been surprised by suffering too. We were sideswiped by suffering. And so we sought counsel, which I encourage. I'll never forget our counselor's words to us. She patiently reminded us what Jesus says about discipleship. And she said that every disciple bears a cross and that each cross is in a way unique. And it does no use comparing crosses to one another. Jesus promised that his followers would experience hard times, not in spite of discipleship, but precisely because of their discipleship with Jesus. In fact, Jesus says over and over again, if you want to follow me, you have to carry a cross. And Simon is just a striking example because he didn't really choose it. He was seized. And yet, we're not told how Simon reacted to this uninvited suffering. Was he bitter? Was he confused? Was he grateful to suffer suffer for Jesus' sake? We don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe that's the point. It's an invitation for all of us to consider how you would feel. But Simon does show us that following Jesus involves uninvited suffering. And third, the witness of Simon shows us that following Jesus connects us to a global church. What Karen Ellis calls the global underground. What do I mean? Well, this text doesn't just say Simon, a man named Simon. This text actually goes out of its way to say a man named Simon of Cyrene. On a modern map, Cyrene is the city of Shahat in the northern African nation of Libya. point is Simon was not from Jerusalem. He was from North Africa. And this small detail is actually of great significance because what it means is at the very least, Simon is a hint of the Pentecost to come. When the world gets the spirit and serves Jesus in a posture that looks very similar to Simon. When Babel is reversed. And so Luke mentions his nationality because believers from Cyrene, I think, play a very important role, actually, in the early church. Cyrene plays a central role in the church of Antioch, where the ancient national divisions came crashing down at the foot of the cross. And if you want a fun Bible study this week, look up references to Cyrene in the book of Acts. Following Jesus connects us to a global church. I think of two things here. I think, number one, that our faith in following Jesus is lowercase c, Catholic. It's Catholic. That word just means universal. It means across national boundaries. A Catholic faith is Catholic because it is Christ-centered, not nation-centered. Nationalism has no place in the kingdom of God. This means that we are always looking to the future where every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be worshiping Jesus because he is the center now and forever. Our ethnicities, our nationalities are honored in that final image, but they are not the center. Jesus is. You can learn a lot about a culture, I think, by how they draw their maps. And so most maps 
that I've encountered in my life place America right in the middle of everything. And that's how many folks, I think, draw the map of the church, unfortunately. With America just right in the middle. But the story of God draws a different map. God is at work across the whole globe. And we get a hint of that with this man, Simon of Cyrene. Following Jesus, I think fourth means that we surrender our story to God's story. We must surrender our story to God's story. This verse says that Simon came in from the country. And I love this little detail. I love this little detail because it tells us that Simon, in a way, wandered into this scene. He was there in Jerusalem. Perhaps he was a Jewish man and he was there for Pentecost. We don't know. Or maybe he was just there visiting. The text just says that he came in from the country. The other day I was driving and up ahead I noticed flashing police lights and I saw ambulance lights. And as I drove closer, I started to look past the police man who was redirecting traffic. I didn't drive to this scene to check it out, but I found myself checking it out. Have you guys done that before? I was caught up in it. And I think this is the witness of Simon. His story was caught up in God's larger story. The sort of epicenter of God's story. The crucifixion of Jesus where he rescues his people on the cross. He he is sort of seized to play a part in this moment. He's brought in to this pivotal place. And we don't hear again in the Bible from Simon at all. This is like his one and only cameo. And so we don't know if Simon becomes a believer because of this appearance or this experience. But Mark, the gospel writer, gives us an interesting detail. Mark, the gospel writer, describes Simon of Cyrene in the same exact moment as the father of a Rufus and Alexander. In parentheses, it says, father of Rufus and Alexander, which means that they were very well known in the early church. This Simon of Cyrene's sons. And so it is an assumption, but I think a very safe assumption, that Simon's sons, at least, were impacted by this experience. Paul even says in Romans that a, that a Rufus's mother was like a mother in the faith to him. We can't be certain this is the same Rufus. But regardless, it's clear that this so-called chance, this chance encounter changed the trajectory of Simon's life. Now, You all have these chance encounters with Jesus as well. I'll call them chance encounters in air quotes because that's just what they are. This text shows us that God is writing his story. And we are to place our story within God's story. And we see chance encounters time and time again in the Gospels. My favorite is the Roman officer at the end of Mark's Gospel. Mark writes, when the Roman officer who stood facing Jesus saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. This Roman officer was there to follow orders to snuff Jesus out. That was his story. But he encountered Jesus on the cross and left changed forever. That's God's story. So I want you to consider your personal story for just a second. Like Simon, have you been thrust into the story of Jesus? 
And if so, could it be that God is enfolding your story into his greater story? I want you to take heart that nothing is on accident in God's kingdom. You are here, actually here this morning on purpose. You've heard the message of Jesus on purpose. Simon shows us that God is in control. He shows us how to surrender your story to his. Following Jesus means surrender. And then finally here, I want to suggest that following Jesus, we can learn from the witness of Simon, reinterprets our suffering. As we've already seen, following Jesus involves uninvited suffering, a death to self. But all those things do not have the final word. Because the cross is not the final say in Jesus' story either. See, in our text, Simon carries his cross behind him. And it's very evident that because Luke highlights the fact that Jesus taught his disciples, if you follow me, if you follow me, you will have to pick up a cross. It's very, very, very obvious that Luke is pointing out like that, like this Simon here. He is following Jesus and he is literally carrying a cross. But that means that everything we do, even our cross that we bear, is behind Jesus. And that means that we walk to the cross like Jesus, but it also means we rise to new life like Jesus. The cross of Jesus that Simon carries will be the cross that Jesus himself dies on. The cross that Simon carries is indeed the cross of Jesus. Whether he knows it or not, that cross, that same cross, enables all followers of Jesus to say with a straight face these words from the Apostle Paul. Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our church is called hope for a reason. Because in the Bible, hope is more than wishful thinking. It's living in light of a sure future. So as we follow Jesus, our sure future then is more certain and better than we realize. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's from Revelation. And Revelation, this book in our Bible, the very last book, is written to cruciform, cross-shaped, cross-experiencing Christians who needed a glimpse of their sure future. And so they are given by God a, a, a vision to John is a picture of their vindication in the future, of their resurrection in the future, of, their, of the restoration of all things that seem so chaotic right now. And that's our future too. And what that means is we can reinterpret the cross that we bear. This cross on us, this suffering that we have, is not the final say. The cross of Jesus turns deep suffering into a giant rescue and eternal Life. That's what the cross of Jesus does. And it's the same with our crosses. They're terrible. But there's life on the other side. A friend once compared suffering actually to their manure pile in their backyard. It smelled really bad. But it created all kinds of beautiful growth. We know that from an eternal standpoint, when Jesus comes to make all things new, we are given the promise that that will not compare. Our sufferings will not compare. 
So Simon of Cyrene, I think, is more than just a historical tidbit in the Gospel of Luke. I think Simon of Cyrene is presented to us by Luke as a way of life. What would it look like for hope, in other words, to become more and more Cyrenian? To pick up the cross. To pick up the cross. For Jesus' glory. I think it would, in answer to that question, I think it would, to quote Michael Frost, it would make our lives questionable. I love this from him. He suggests that the mission, the Christian mission, is to orient our lives around Jesus in such a way that it provokes questions from those in our life. We become questionable. Our life provokes questions. Now, I have a feeling that the presentation we had with my village is a questionable life. It provokes questions. You are not fulfilling stereotypes. And as we bear our cross, as we follow Jesus in a cruciform posture, as we have everything and therefore are freed up to give everything, this is a questionable way of life. And our neighbors have to ask questions because we don't fit their expectations and they must ask, what makes you tick? You're doing what? I think a Cyrenian church, a church that bears their cross, would be a questionable church. We follow Jesus with Simon, which means our lives are cross-shaped. People bless and yes, surprise those in our midst. And so, Lord, we learn that the cross is more than our salvation. The cross is our mission as well. We don't bear our cross to save ourselves. We don't bear our cross to redeem anyone. You did that, Lord. But we do gladly bear a cross in your name and for your glory so that your power would rest on us. So that your gospel would go forward. So that your good news would land on the hearts of those you've placed in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.